What do pride and perversion have to do with public policy and principles? Find out next on Principles and Policies. Hello and welcome to today's program of Principles and Policies. As you can hear, normally my uh, co-host Barry Sheets opens our program. I think Barry, unfortunately, I'll do a quick update here. I think Barry, unfortunately, has recorded his last show. He continues with us mentally and physically still. He is to the point where he can't really garner the strength to come online with us and do a program. We honestly, two weeks ago, I'm, I'm recording this on Friday the 23rd of June, 2023 for our uh, 24th of June 2023 show and a couple of weeks ago Barry had a crisis and really honestly thought that it was the end for him he had a gastrointestinal bleed that was very serious he had a number of other things going on that were very serious he signed a do not resuscitate order if you know what that is, it means no extraordinary means will be taken to continue his life and was fairly certain that it was the end of the line. And I was certain he was certain his wife was certain the hospice was also certain, but God was not done with him yet. And I contacted him. Uh, trying not to bother him too much because a number of I, I, he and I correspond all the time. I send him articles and he sends me articles and some of that has slowed down because Barry during this crisis lost a lot of blood on this GI tract bleed. I mean a lot of blood to the point where his wife said that he was literally white as a sheet. And since he had signed a DNR they didn't give him a blood transfusion. So he is down there producing. He's rebuilding his blood count, doing his best to get it back to normal on his own without a blood transfusion. But it has left him very, very tired and unable to concentrate. When I send him things, he, he'll, he'll write me back and said, thank you, I'll read this when I can. Well, Hopefully, he will continue because he did rally. And the gastrointestinal bleed stopped on its own without any further treatment, which didn't make any sense to me. It doesn't make any sense to him. It only makes sense to God who, who caused it to happen. So basically, Barry is, let's put it this way, he's on the dock getting ready to board the ship, but he's not on the ship yet, and the ship has not yet set sail. So I'm still in correspondence with him. I ask him how he is. He tells me, he says, well, I can't concentrate, which is, I'll be quite honest, and this is going to lead us up in, into today's topics, but Barry has a fine mind, a very fine mind. As you've heard evidenced on this program, Barry has a very fine mind. He's very analytical. He has the ability to use that analysis and his knowledge of human nature to think ahead about what's going to happen. So sometimes you'll hear us on here say, both of us on here say, I think this is going to happen. And it's going to happen a certain way. Does that mean that we have some kind of prophetic lifeline to the Lord and we're speaking these prophecies as they're given to us? No. We're making predictions based on our understanding with under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, of course. 
our understanding of human nature and the Bible, God's laws and how, how they apply, what that means is that we are looking at those things and we're applying them and we're telling you what we see based on what we know about specific individuals in the news, what's going to happen. Now, does it always happen the way we think it's going to? No, because life has a way of throwing in a monkey wrench into the most finely thought out strategies and predictions about what's going to happen. God, God has a way of throwing a monkey wrench in and sort of sitting back and laughing at us who thought we were smart enough to come up with something that we knew with metaphysical certitude. This, if you ever watched the McLaughlin group many years ago, John McLaughlin is dead now. Uh, but he used to have on PBS, on uh, we used to get it on Friday nights, the McLaughlin Report. And it was uh, John McLaughlin, and he, he had all these cronies, these uh, journalistic cronies that sat around him. And they would sit around and, do, and talk about events and give analysis. And it, it came from multiple viewpoints. I would have disagreed with, with <laughs> what he called conservatism. Uh, was really kind of uh, center-left. He had a lot of guys who claimed to be conservative who were center-left, sort of uh, National Review-type guys. But nonetheless, every once in a while, the the guys who got caught up the most were the left because they took at face value what was being told to them. And they said, well, we have reports from so-and-so and such-and-such inside the State Department or the CIA, you know, some source. And they were being manipulated. Well, big shock. I mean, not surprising. Barry does not get manipulated. Every once in a while, somebody will try one on and he'll buy into it for a minute. And then he looks further into it and he's like, nope, <laughs> this is not the real thing. This is why I'll be quite open and honest with you. This is why his loss, when he does finally pass, will be a big loss. I've known Barry now for over 20 years, uh, 21, 22 years, somewhere in that vicinity. And I can tell you that, that I've come to trust his judgment. Other people trust his judgment. You know, I, I'm writing a eulogy for him, and, and I'm giving you bits and pieces of it here. My friend Barry Sheets is a brilliant analyst, and this is what made him such a great lobbyist. Now, if you went to visit him at his home, when you think of a lobbyist, you think of somebody who lives in a 5,000 square foot house with a pool and hot tub and, and all these things, all the amenities. He drives his Tesla Model Y or whatever. Nope, that's not Barry. That's not the kind of lobbyist Barry is. Um, you, I don't know if Mike may have played the ad for Principal Consulting, which is Barry's firm. That's not what Barry does. Barry's not what you would call an influence lobbyist. An influence lobbyist is someone who hands out money. He hands out money. He hands out baseball tickets. He hands out hard-to-get things to people in government to get them to perhaps they're leaning his way, the lobbyist's way already, or perhaps he's on the fence. Lobbyists hand out favors to get favors to get things for certain for groups they represent and very often what you'll find that the groups that are being represented aren't necessarily the viewpoint of the lobbyist but the lobbyist has the ability 
to you know, they'll they'll take on clients they don't agree with. Why? Because they get paid to do it, and they're good at their job. I'm not saying that an influence lobbyist isn't good at their job. They are. Sometimes they're too good at their job, and all we got to do is go back and look at the whole mess with First Energy. Neil Clark was very good at his job. Very, very good at his job. In fact, Barry Sheets used to tell me that Neil Clark hated him, hated Barry Sheets. And the reason he hated Barry Sheets, because Barry Sheets is what's called a confrontation lobbyist. He doesn't make gobboons of money. He told me once, we, we talked about how much money he made because I used him as a lobbyist. Uh, my company used him as a lobbyist. We didn't normally lobby for a whole lot of, of legislation. Sometimes when it was a health freedom issue, I was involved in uh, helping trying to get some health freedom issues through. And Barry was my lobbyist on that. Barry kept his hand on the pulse of the legislature for me and would tell me when important things were coming up. You know that we're Barry and I are both adamant opponents to the uh, Constitutional Convention. Barry and I have been advocating for, and by the way, I'll give a plea later on for the August 8th special election. But in any case, Barry did these things. He made piddling money. He always drove a used car, and he always he was a great bargain hunter, and he finds things that he needs for his family. He is a scrounger for decent prices, and people help him because he has helped them. He worked on campaigns, and he got paid to work on campaigns. He was a good campaign manager, and he did do that. That's part of his consulting firm principled consulting. He did these things. He does these things. And he makes an amount of money that most of you would burst into tears if you knew how much he made and how he made it work for him through the administration of God and through the Holy Spirit. I'm not kidding you. Sometimes I'm like, I would look at what he was charging me for the two-year legislative session. I go, Dude, you are undercharging me. You're undercharging everybody. And he goes, this is the way we get things done. He goes, I make enough money. And he goes, when I need more money and I'm not figure out I'm not charging enough, I'll charge more. So this is the difference between an influence lobbyist and a confrontation lobbyist. And what, what do you mean by a confrontation lobbyist? It means he would get in people's faces. He would get up to them and say, are you doing the right thing? Why are you in opposition to a bill that would, for instance, give parents more rights in controlling what their children see and hear uh, and do in a public school? Well, the teachers union would often be the answer. And he's like, are you beholden to the teachers union or are you beholden to your constituents? That's the kind of lobbying that Barry Sheets did. And very and did it sometimes require making these men and women feel guilty? Yes. But when he earned his bones in this job by working as a legislative assistant. And there's an old saying. It's attributed to a guy named Otto von Bismarck who was the man who was responsible essentially for uh, taking Germany from a far-flung 
grouping of principalities and minor kingdoms and welding them all together into the nation of Germany as we know it today, and and we've known it since 1871, a unified country, and Germany before that was, was a patchwork. And Otto von Bismarck is quoting as having said, anyone who loves the law or sausages should never watch either one being made. Now, if you get the implication... If you've ever seen sausages being made, you'll understand what he meant. <laughs> because you might not ever eat sausage again if you watched it done from your vantage point as, uh, you know, your job, your nine to five job, where you drive to work and you click on a computer for a while and then you come home and and eat the sausage. Well, if you work in a sausage, there's a lot of people that work in sausage factories that won't eat the stuff. Why? Well, because they get tired of seeing the raw meat being ground up, put in the casing and all that, and the conditions around in the in a factory. And despite the fact that they're as clean as they can be, it's still nasty when you're grinding up an animal and putting it in a casing. In any case, Barry did not have the... Uh, he loved the law, and he did love sausages, and he was not afraid. He, all, he grew up on a farm. He was not afraid of how sausages were made. In fact, he he earned his bones working for, in the legislature, as a legislative assistant, which means he also still didn't make any money. (laughs) We used to laugh about that as well. And like, how do they keep getting a staff when they pay that amount? And he's like, there are people who understand that they're in the legislature to learn the process so they can either go out and be a lobbyist or or come into the legislature, get, get themselves elected on the basis that they know how things work. And he, he worked for a, uh, a uh, I think she was a state rep in Worthington, Twyla Roman. And I, I, I remember a meeting with her. I, I went to one of her fundraisers up there at her home. And very, a very fine woman who loved Barry, and uh, Barry loved her. And uh, he learned the ropes doing that. And being a good, strong Christian man, he sought to have influence over others, which he did. He has great influence over a number of people. There are people who are devastated by the fact that, and well, I'm devastated by the fact that he's going to be leaving us, but there are people that are devastated by that fact. Why? They look forward to having Barry's input. Why? Because he's a principled man, and hence the name of his company, Principled Consulting, and the the title of the show, Principles and Policies. I have to laugh sometimes. I look at WLRY's logo for us, and it says Principles with spelled with an a in other words principals like the principal in your school and policies and i said well that's <laughs> that's not really what we're about it's principles uh and what kind of principles are we using well we uh, we attempt to apply biblical principles and you know barry uh uh again he he was very good at what he did very very good at analysis application of the analysis how to approach a problem based on that analysis but he remained humble he remained very humble about that one of the most difficult things you can do 
is you begin to think. You begin to think once you've done, you've been successful at something, that it's all you. It's all you. Barry didn't think it was all him. Barry thinks it was him, the Holy Spirit, God, and God's guiding light the, here on earth, the Bible. And he would do his best to apply biblical principle to what he was doing in the legislature and the legislation that would come out. And hence, we're principles and policies, and he's principled policy consulting. That's what he's about. That's what I'm about. Principles and policies. Now, what does that have to do with anything? I said, you know, uh, I was going get, to get to something. And that is that Barry didn't allow pride to color his vision for how things should be done. Was he, did he have proud times? Yes, he's proud of his children. He's proud of his family. He's proud of what God has guided him to accomplish. And he should be proud of that. But his pride is in the Lord. It's not in himself. And that's where we run into trouble, is when we get proud of ourselves. We see it all around us. We see, well, for instance, let's talk about, and this will segue into something else. Let, just for, As I speak about this, yesterday afternoon about 3 o'clock, it was announced that many of you followed this and prayed for this group and it did not work out successfully. That was this group that went down in a little submarine to visit the Titanic, a man by the name of Stockton Rush, took a number of people on an excursion in this submersible vehicle that uh, it was called the Cyclops because it had a huge uh, spherical window in the front of the vehicle. It, it was really small. I mean, it was like a sort of like, <laughs> uh, it, it's just a tube, really. It It was a tube with some, control equipment, some oxygen tanks, and electric motors, and that kind of thing, to get them down to the Titanic site. Well, folks, the Titanic's down 12,500 feet. Um, that's two miles. Um, it's more than two miles. Um, you, you know, 5,280, uh, 10,000 10,500 uh, would be two miles. It's two and a half miles, another half mile down. Uh, that's a tremendous distance underwater. Uh, in what amounts to a carbon tube with a titanium frame and a plexiglass front nose. I've asked myself several times, uh, do I have the spirit of adventure necessary to go down in what amounts to an, an uncertified vehicle? Because it, it was definitely uncertified. And they did it that way on purpose, which we'll, we'll get to when, when we continue to talk about the issue involved here. But it went down, and apparently the company that runs ran, ran these excursions called Ocean Gate, um, shall we say, cut corners on, on safety. Uh, folks, the place to cut corners on safety is not on a vehicle that's going two, two and a half miles under the ocean. Just like as if, uh, we were going into outer space. 
we wouldn't want to cut corners on safety. And in fact, we have a track record of actually compromising on safety uh, in our space shuttle program. And it cost us two space shuttles, but outside the material, it cost the lives of, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly how many were out there. I think 14 people, 14 crew members uh, who died because uh, of the pride of engineers and uh, higher-ups, people who were in charge but weren't necessarily engineers at NASA. And it happened twice. What, you know, what should have happened? Well, if I, I can still remember, I was in uh, college in 1986 when the, uh, when the first one, uh, essentially uh, burned up uh, on re-entry um, or actually blew up. I'm sorry. That's the second one. The first one blew up off the launch pad. Um, and I, I didn't hear about it right away because I, I was a college student. I was in a chemistry laboratory. I, I am a, I am a chemist, a biochemist, and I was in a chemistry laboratory. Nobody ran a radio in those things. You were busy working on your lab work. Uh, it was for a class. It was a laboratory for a class and you were busy doing your lab work. So I didn't know anything about it until my, my lab went from like three in the afternoon till six at night. And I went out and got in my car and turned on the radio and I'm like, I'm being bombarded with this horrible tragedy and they're going on and on. I'm like, what happened? What happened? Well, the, the, space shuttle blew up off the launch pad and I get home, watch the films. It was, I still remember being just awestruck. Uh, and as it unfolded about what happened, I was continued to be awestruck by the, uh, um, the arrogance and the presumption of the people who overrode the launch engineers and said, launch this thing. What do you want me to do? Wait until spring was one of the quotes because this thing launched in January. Okay. And everybody said it's too cold. Those O-rings on the solid rocket booster cannot stand that temperature. They cannot hold up on the, on that temperature. And the launch engineers were saying, don't go, don't go, don't go, don't go. That we're, it's not, you know, it's not certified for that temperature. And the decision was made over their heads after talking to people who came under the influence of the manufacturer. And their engineers also said, don't go, don't go, don't go, don't go. And they went. And what happened? Well, we all watched it. Uh, the solid rocket booster sprung a leak around where the uh, um, the gaskets were, the gaskets that were in question, and the thing blew up, and it blew into tiny pieces. Um, how'd that work out? Well, obviously, uh, we lost millions of dollars in material, but more importantly, we lost uh, all these trained people, all these people who were... Uh, uh, good enough to be specially chosen to go up in these vehicles were they warned you know uh, we live in a society where we depend on others to give us warnings about 
um, things that they know about, our safety depends on them, and they know about, and we don't. So we rely on a chain. We rely on a chain of things to come through, to to keep us safe in a society. You can't know everything. When I was a sterilization specialist, I had to know something about the devices I was um, working with. We worked with high-pressure cooking vessels uh, that would get up to 200 and, you know, I I designed a couple of uh, um, processes at 273 degrees. I forget how many atmospheres it is now. I used to be able to do the calculation in my head. That's 26, 27 years ago. I can't do that anymore. <laughs> Nonetheless, uh, these pressure vessels, and we would run uh, can, sealed cans through there, and because the pressure was so high in the vessel, the water didn't boil. Obviously, uh, that's the whole reason why you do that, because otherwise your uh, everything would boil off. So you, you keep the water in there and, and you keep it under a high pressure and, and it doesn't boil. So, But that being said, you had to know something about how the pressure vessels work because if you designed something that was just too much more than the pressure vessel could hold, it could blow up. And if a pressure vessel under that much, that temperature and those, people would be killed. They'd be scalded to death and it would be an ugly death. Just, just ugly death. Sort of like what happened with the, the space shuttles. Uh, the second one, I remember I was in a meeting. Barry and I were in a group. And somehow I ended up being chairman of that group for the day. I'm not sure how. I think everybody was sick or out or whatever. But I chaired the group. And somebody ran in the room and said the uh, the space shuttle just blew up on reentry. Just burned up in the atmosphere. And I, we were like devastated. Uh, for obvious reasons. Um, and uh, we immediately went into prayer for, uh, you know, that we hoped that uh, maybe something could be salvaged and maybe somebody would be found alive inside a compartment someplace. Nope, didn't happen. We prayed for their families. Um, and what else could we do? But again, it's, it was another failure. Uh, it was a failure of, uh, uh, um, of safety. Now, what, what, do these things what what does this uh uh this excursion vessel the cyclops and the challenger and the uh i'm trying to remember the other one uh uh the columbia i think um what what do those have in common those those failures that that cost people uh money or cost people's lives uh cause tragedies you know we all come together and we feel a common bond because we're we are commonly hoping against hope and praying that people are found alive and and uh, it's it, it it devastates us when they're not. What 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 do they have in common? Well, there was a pride. What really brought it down was pride. Uh, all these things happen. If you read the story about the CEO of this company named Stockton Rush, of uh, the CEO of uh, Ocean Gate Expeditions, the uh, he was the head guy. Um, 
this is a guy who and his company it's not just him it's his board of directors as well uh one of the problems that they had was uh stockton rush uh just did things that are are uh, you and i would consider to be unconscionable i think um he poo-pooed uh safety issues with his with his little submersible and and he uh um now first of all ask me if i would climb into a into a uh, a tube uh with one end being a uh, a plexiglass i don't care how thick it is it, i think it was like eight or nine inches thick a plexiglass uh, uh dome and you use a dome i understood why they used the dome domes uh engineering wise domes can handle more pressure than than flat uh flat flat um glass flat plexiglass flat um whatever on a vessel and a vessel where you're going down two and a half miles into the ocean um it it can take the pressure better as a dome than it can as a flat and it has to do with uh uh the way the pressure is distributed through throughout the dome um and uh uh but he he they went down in this tube and it was made of composite if you know what composite is carbon fiber and it had a titanium frame well uh carbon fiber is extremely strong and lightweight Nonetheless, uh, if you go down in a submarine, if they had tried to go down to us in a regular old submarine down 12,500 feet, they would have been crushed to death under the pressure of the ocean at about seven or 800 feet. The, the, the submarine would have collapsed in on itself. It would have imploded just like the, uh, the Cyclops did. Uh, why? Because there's a crush depth. And these things can only go down so far. Um, the This composite ship that they went down in, it was um, designed, at least on paper, to be able to take those, those crush depths. Now, what, what people don't understand very often is that steel... Uh, the the metal that the subs are made of the, it crushes. Composite doesn't crush; it shears. In other words, it'll it'll just uh, uh, crack in on itself and fall apart under the, the wrong conditions. And apparently, that's what happened. It got down so far; there were flaws in the design. There may have been a flaw in the uh, uh, in the composite. Um, there may, there are any number of speculations and we'll hear about it now for the, if they can recover any of the debris, remember it's down to, it's down two and a half miles. So recovering the debris, uh, yeah, you can see it on a robot on what they call an ROV, a remotely operated vehicle, but you, you getting down there to get it, uh, you can't send divers down. Obviously they'd be crushed. 
Um, you can't send manned vehicles down so much because, look, we already lost one, and is it worth it to... So they'll do it remotely. They'll, they'll examine this remotely uh, to see exactly what happened. But we, are, we have a pretty good idea. They weren't, weren't even halfway there before the thing fell apart, as near as I can tell. It, it, took, it takes hours to get down there. It takes hours to get back. Even if they you know, are able to do this and determine what happened, chances are there, it's simply a flaw in, in uh, the composite itself. There may have been a crack that nobody could see. Uh, they don't seem to have had any redundancy of systems to, uh, um, for recovery. Uh, the first thing that came to my mind was I, I told my wife, I said, why wasn't that thing tethered? And she goes, what do you mean? And I go, well, it should have had a, a line. It should have been lowered by a line. So, yeah, it, that requires a lot of technology. But you could lower it down, retrieve it through through a cable. And you can communicate through a cable because they that one of the things that happened was they had lost communication at like an hour and 45 minutes or something. Well, that's when they started worrying, but they waited hours and hours before they actually started calling people like the Coast Guard to come in and help them uh, deal with this problem because they had sent ex experimental dives down and had lost communication with the Cyclops. Well, folks, <laughs> if you're on a, on a vessel that can't communicate in an emergency in the ocean to the mothership it's a death trap and what's involved in sending people to, you know five people down in a death trap it's pride they were sure of themselves and i'm not talking about mere uh self-confidence um mere self-confidence you have to have self-confidence right in, in your abilities to do something. Um, there's an old saying that I, I once saw someone talking about general Douglas MacArthur and one journalist had said, Oh, he was the master egotist, uh, you know, of all time. He, you know, ego, ego, ego. And, and the, uh, and this other journalist, uh, piped up and said, uh, yeah, well, who wants to go into battle behind a guy with an inferiority complex? Well, isn't that true? You want to go into battle behind a general who, who has confidence in his battle plan and confidence in you and confidence in his leadership staff to make sure that as few of you as possible get killed. That's the whole point. So these guys uh, um, cut corners. Uh, they didn't have pro a re the proper redundancy and recovery. Uh, they didn't have the proper redundancy and safety. Obviously, they had a, a vessel which blew up somewhere partway or all the way down, if, if I've been misinformed, all the way down to the bottom of the ocean where the Titanic itself lay. Um, these guys, and it, how do we know that they, they had this hubris? Well, uh, hubris is, is a good word for this. A quick look at a dictionary tells us that hubris... Uh, I found a couple of definitions that, 
that maybe don't go far enough. Maybe uh, don't really say as much as they ought to. But let's go into this just for a second. Um, <clears throat> one I found says it's overbearing pride or presumption and arrogance. Another one says a personal quality of extreme or excessive pride or dangerous overconfidence, often in combination with arrogance. Well, okay, those are both pretty good. Uh, the second one is probably better. Now, just uh, for instance... Uh, you can find articles that talk about James Cameron, who made the movie Titanic and has been involved in building these little vehicles, uh, to do these jobs, um, to go under the ocean, go deep, um, um, go down to the Titanic wreck, um, and so he knows something of this, and he basically says uh, that the problem with uh, um, Stockton Rush and the, the whole company uh, that he was the CEO of, um, which is uh, 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 Ocean Gate Expeditions, uh, he says the major problem is was arrogance and hubris. Well, hubris, arrogance and hubris, is a, as we mentioned before, that, that's a redundancy. But it doomed both the Titanic and, and this, uh, I, I think the ship, I've been saying the Cyclops, I think it was the Titan. In any case, um, he's absolutely right. It doomed both. The, 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 uh, the Titanic was thought to be unsinkable. If you recall, uh, there were things that were said that were ridiculous, like even God himself could not sink the Titanic. Um, well, he did. <laughs> uh, yes. Did, did God have a hand in sinking the Titanic? Yes, he did. Um, it was in his will, and it sank because uh, he willed it to sink. Um, that's These are facts. Uh and this thing disintegrated with uh, this uh, this little ship, whether it be called the Titan or the Cyclops. Um, it disintegrated uh, because God willed it. Um, and in part, he willed it because of the arrogance and the, uh, um, the hubris, again that word, uh, of the people involved in building the things. Now, did Joe Blow, who was working in the shipyard in Ireland when they when they built the the Titanic, they did, were they you know were they arrogant? No, they were just following a plan. Who was arrogant? The people that designed it and the people that had it built and uh, allowed themselves to make statements that it was an unsinkable ship. No ship is unsinkable. Uh, the Japanese thought they'd pulled it off with uh, uh, the. They're two super giant battleships, the uh, Yamato and the Musashi, and both of them were sunk before the end of the war. That being said, some of the things, we, we don't just pop up with a, uh, um, an accusation of arrogance out of nowhere. Um, essentially, the, the Cyclops, oh, by the way, I, I just figured it out. Cyclops was the vessel that came before the Titan. The Titan is the one that, that was destroyed. The Cyclops is the pre preceding vessel. Um, 
he basically is quoted as having said he didn't hire men with uh, and I, because it's mostly men. I, I mean, are there women who could be involved in this? Probably. Uh, but it's mostly men. And uh, he said he didn't hire people with who were submariners. In other words, experienced people with, with the submarines because they're mostly 50-year-old white guys. Well, he himself was a 61-year-old white guy. So, <laughs> so much for that. But he wanted to hire... Uh, mid-20s guys, and he said he didn't want the 50-year-old guys because they weren't, quote-unquote, inspirational to young people. Well, that's more of a symptom of the culture than it is of anything else. I can remember when I was a kid, I admired plenty of guys who were over 50 years old because of the things they were doing. Uh, They were experienced men who built on the experience of the men who came before them and didn't take stupid chances. Nonetheless, uh, Here's the quote. I wanted our team to be younger, to be inspirational, and I'm not going to inspire a 16-year-old to go pursue marine technology, but a 25-year-old, you know, who's a sub-pilot or a platform operator or one of our techs can be inspirational. He can also uh, be someone who doesn't have the knowledge of the ins and outs of what can happen and what might happen. Uh And some of them, the wise ones will tell you, you know, I don't really have enough experience in this area. You know, contact so-and-so. He's been through one of these things. Uh, Some some submarine gets lost or uh, something bad happens and they have to be retrieved. It has happened. It's rare, but it has happened. Uh, So he says, basically, we've tried to get very intelligent, motivated, younger individuals involved because we're doing things that are completely new. No, they're not. They're not that completely new. I I understand what he's saying. There there is a certain um, pioneer spirit, if you will, an uh, explorer spirit. In fact, a couple of some of these people on this on this thing were members of a thing called the Explorers Club. And they were, uh, um, you know, they were people who were willing to, first of all, pay $250,000. That's what it costs to go on this thing. So you pay 250000 bucks to get on this ride with the CEO of the of uh, Ocean's Gate Expeditions. And uh, um, in, in so doing, um, they lost their lives. Well... Look, it, it's kind of the reason why there are bodies littered all over Mount Everest. And they're still finding ones that were lost in the 1920s who made attempts at the at Mount Everest very early before uh, Sir Edmund Hillary. Uh, and um, oh, I'm trying to remember the, the name of the guy uh, uh, who, uh, the Sherpa who went with him. Uh, the two men who were, were considered co- uh, co-conquerors of Mount Everest. I can't think of his name. Um, it's it's not a complex name. In any case, uh, Hillary and this and this uh, Sherpa fellow uh, were the first ones up there, but they weren't the first ones to attempt it. Uh, the bodies of, of the uh, um, of the failures are littered all over uh, Mount Everest. Uh, in fact, there are people who were used as markers their bodies. There was a guy named Green Boots. They called him Green Boots. Um, 
and he was on the path and people knew they were on the right path when they they found green boots it's very difficult to recover those bodies uh, and it was it's impossible to recover the ones that are missing from uh, this this f- failure of uh, this mini sub um, in any case the Titan uh, they will not be finding those bodies because they disintegrated the the at that depth the pressure is so great that the body simply disintegrated. An interviewer pointed out that people said pretty much the same thing about the Titanic, which famously sank to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean in 1912 after it hit an iceberg. I, this, this is uh, based on, on what uh, uh, Stockton Rush said uh, in an interview in 2017. He said the Cyclops, the precursor to the Titan, is, is safe. By the time we're done testing it, I believe it's pretty much invulnerable. Invulnerable. That's an important word to think of. This is why these guys were thought they were okay with cutting corners because their device was invulnerable. That's kind of why why the Titanic didn't have enough lifeboats. Because after all, it couldn't be sunk. What do we need lifeboats for? They were still under development at the time, and the interviewer said something, made that statement about the Titanic, same thing. Stockton acknowledged, and he said, that's right, and I will go all out and put my money where my mouth is. And he did. I'll give him that. He went down in the thing because he over-trusted the technology. He didn't have the people around him to say, don't do it. In fact... What's really interesting in, in about this is uh, uh, Ocean's Gate Expeditions fired a previous uh, director of operation, director of marine operations, guy named David Lockridge, after it disagreed with his demand for more rigorous safety checks on the submersible. In other words, they fired the director of marine operations. Uh, five years ago, because he was insisting on more safety checks. Um, okay, folks. I again, I really, if I was going to go down in this thing, I want, I would want redundant testing done. So there's an arrogance of pride. That's exactly what arrogance is. It's a, it's a, such a total belief in yourself. You cannot believe you could possibly be wrong. Could you possibly be wrong? Obviously, you could be possibly wrong. So, we've got a situation where we've got a company that, because they're more interested in being politically correct and being woke, this uh, 50-year-old white guy thing, uh, you know, the guys who have the experience, most of the experience in, in being submariners. Can, can you find people of color who have experience being submariners? Yeah, of course. There, there are people involved in naval operations and Coast Guard who are, who are of color. And there are also men and women um, who might be involved. Engineers and, and those kinds of things, sure. But the... the the, the idea is it, look it's it's mostly a male field let's be let's be clear about that it's it's mostly a male field and it's for good reason um uh it, women generally 
if they want to go in the armed services, if they're getting STEM, uh, science, technology, engineering, mathematical degrees, which you need to be an engineer, um, they're not going into submarines. Again, there are exceptions. Uh, most of them are going into industry. Why? They're in high demand. Why? Because we have a quota system essentially in place. Uh, the Navy does too, and they openly recruit them, But uh, and some of them take them up on that because, uh, honestly, uh, armed services uh, looks good on a resume uh, yeah, for good reason. You, you can serve and you can, uh, uh, you know, hierarchy and you know discipline. Uh, that's another thing that, that these guys, that, that uh, Stockton Rush didn't take into account. These older 50-year-old guys, they understand hierarchy. They understand that they don't know everything. 25-year-old guys are just coming, just. Their, the frontal cortex is now fully developed and are just coming out of their arrogance and saying, wow, I really don't know everything. My dad really is smarter than I thought. This is the time when young men suddenly realize their fathers weren't complete idiots. And their parents in general. Why? Because they're suddenly realizing, they're seeing the world as it is and suddenly realizing, wow, these are the people you want to, to inspire 16-year-olds. No, you really do want the 50-year-old guys to inspire 16-year-olds. Why? Because they understand. They'll go to them and say, you can't run off and go off half-cocked. If you understand what that means, that's an old phrase for the old days when you were using flintlocks. You had to half-cock them to load them. And there were there were several settings, and you pulled the flint back part way. Well, it would go off half-cocked if you accidentally pulled the trigger while you were loading the, the flash pan. Um, hence the phrase, going off half-cocked. And it usually was a dangerous situation because you were loading, still loading the firearm. I'm not going to get as far as I wanted to today. And, and uh, I do want to talk about something before we get off. We'll complete this out. This is, remember, this is the sin of pride. Um, I want to point out a biblical passage. You've all heard the, the proverb, and it is a proverb. It's Proverbs 16:18. Pride goes Pride goeth before a fall. We all know that part of it. It actually goes like this. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And there, there was there pride and a haughty spirit? Oh, absolutely there was. And God will not be mocked on this kind of stuff. Now, am I saying God allowed this thing to be crushed because these guys were too proud? In part, I'm saying that. But there's also, remember that our own actions um, come back to poke us. And these Stockton Rush and all the people involved, I mean, you, when you fire your director of marine operations because he says the darn thing is not well tested enough, we're cutting safety corners, you have now delved into the situation where you have... Uh, created a situation where you are going to be brought to your knees. Who brought you really to your knees? God did, but how did he do it? He brought you to your knees through your own actions. And that's what we're talking about here. 
this isn't the only thing involved. Uh, now, what does this have to do with, you know, we've talked about principles and policies. Okay, what's the principle that's being, don't get caught in the, in the sin of pride. Okay, that's the principle. What's the policy that comes out of it? Well, very interesting that you ask that question because uh, are there going to be recriminations? Well, everybody had to sign a, um, a waiver before they went on this thing. Do waivers stop lawsuits? No, they don't, especially when you can prove negligence. And I think in this case, you can prove negligence. So my guess would be that Ocean Gate... Uh, excursions or ocean gate, uh, expedition, whatever the name is, uh, ocean gate expeditions are probably going to be sued out of existence. Um, because was there negligence? Obviously there was, um, and more will be known as, as we go along. Um, they didn't use a full health monitoring system. Uh, Look, this thing would have taken hours to get down and hours to get back. If somebody had a heart attack or an asthma attack or some health issue, uh, they could be hours from the surface. Someone could die. So they didn't really have a health monitoring system in place. But what does that mean for policies? What policies could be in place? Well, most people, sadly, think automatically about government policy. What government policy should be involved here. Stockton Rush was sort of infamous uh, for saying things about um, regulation. Now, look, I'm one of those people that thinks our lives are grossly overregulated, but if I were going to go down two and a half miles in the ocean, I would want to make sure that at least some safety regulations were in place. Now, who would enforce them? Remember, this is way off the coast of Canada. I think uh, Newfoundland. Um, uh, we were getting all our information from the Coast Guard out of Boston. Why? Well, they've got a, they got a big operation out of Boston. They have a... Uh, um, you know, a lot of them sail out of Boston. Um, but uh, uh, the U.S. Coast Guard was involved, but it's well outside anybody's territorial waters, okay? The the Titanic wreck is, is off, uh, off uh, Newfoundland, way out in the Atlantic, outside anybody's jurisdiction, okay? That being said, who would regulate it? Well, the U.S. could say you can't launch an expedition from the shore of the United States with this vessel if it doesn't meet certain safety criteria. They could say that. But I want to see a company that's willing to police itself. And that's the issue. We rely on the government too much to do things where in reality what ought to be happening is that people should be policing themselves. But it's that pride that you saw in the things that Stockton Rush said and 
the company Ocean Gate Expeditions in, engaged in by firing a man who was saying, we don't have enough safety measures in place. Um, look, it, it, this is a sin of arrogance with the, it's the chickens come home to roost. Um, if you will, I, I, mixing kind of metaphors here, but, um, the fact is that, uh, no one policed themselves and there's really no regulation who, who, Again, the only way to really regulate it is you can't launch a submersible expedition from here without the proper safety um, equipment in place. That would be the way to do it. Or you would sign yourself up to be inspected by the Coast Guard on a patrol. Uh, You would agree to be inspected, have your vessels inspected. Uh, The problem is there aren't that many. Let's face it, how, how many submersible vessels uh, experts uh, would be involved in a Coast Guard cutter. Not that many. You'd have to send out a special uh, a special man to go do the job. My, my son-in-law's in the Coast Guard. We, we were joking around here bef- before the thing was found to have exploded. We were saying, well, send Aaron out. He'll find it. Um, even though he's training in, uh, in avionics, <laughs> not exactly where his expertise is being trained into him but that being said look this is about uh pride i want to talk more about pride and maybe i'll do it next week uh, because i want to i want to move it into not just pride but also perversion and i don't mean just total always everything about sexual perversion i mean other kinds of perversion and how one and the other they work hand in hand to create an even bigger sin Well, that being said, we're almost out of time. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, please, 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 please register to vote for uh, the August special election. You have to have your uh, contact your uh, um, your local uh, uh, Bureau of Elections. Make sure you're registered to vote for this August special. Uh, You need to go and vote yes. This will protect the Ohio Constitution from uh, all kinds of ongoing shenanigans. But we need you to come out and vote. you got to come out and vote to protect this. Because there are groups of people out there that are, that are gearing up to enshrine uh, abortion into the state constitution through a, uh, through a special election. Uh, and they, they, in the, under the current scenario, they only need 50% plus one. Uh, we want to make it a 60%. It's what it should have been all along. There always should have been safeguards with a 60% minimum. Some states require other, other, you know, 70%. Some require other 65% others. We think 60% is a good place to go. Um, that being said, Please contact your, or look around, go to ccv.org, uh, centerforchristianvirtue.org, and look at their website. They'll, they will explain more of these issues. I'm wanting to do a show where I explain more of these issues. And uh, again, uh, um, please vote in that election. You can vote early starting July 11th by in person. Uh, 
uh, go down to the Board of Elections and vote in that thing. Um, please do so. Uh, I beg you, uh, protect the Ohio Constitution. Vote in that August special election. Don't. If you're going to be out of town, go vote early. Okay, you know what we think. We want to know what you think. www.principledpolicy.com. That's principledpolicy.com. And join us again next week for another Principles and Policies.